Israel Week in Review with your host, Ben Ronsman. Today is Friday, June 18th. This program brings you a breakdown of the week's news from Israel. We go behind the headlines to offer listeners in-depth understanding and context to help you understand Israel and the broader Middle East. Israel Week in Review is brought to you by Origin Story Marketing. Search engine optimization is essential in today's business environment. To learn more about how Origin Story can help customers find your business, visit originstorymarketing.com. Rescheduled Flag March takes place Tuesday. Israel's newly formed government allowed a controversial flag march to proceed through Jerusalem on Tuesday. This march was originally scheduled to take place on Yom Yerushalayim, Jerusalem Day. This year, it was held on May 10th. It was ultimately canceled due to Hamas rocket fire. Many security officials were hesitant to let the march proceed at all. Ultimately, it was rerouted to avoid the Muslim quarter of the old city. However, the marchers did pass the Damascus Gate, the city's main gate entering the Muslim quarter. Over the ensuing decades, the Damascus Gate, called Shar Shechem in Hebrew and Bab Alamud in Arabic, has become a potent symbol of Palestinian nationalism. This entryway was built by the Ottoman Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent in 1537. As the main Muslim entry point into the Old City, famous for both its markets and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, it has been the scene of numerous political disturbances over the years. In fact, in the most recent outburst of violence in Jerusalem during the Islamic holy month of Ramadan, the Damascus Gate was a major flashpoint. Over 5,000 marchers carrying Israeli flags marched through the city, ultimately ending up at the Western Wall or Kotel. Footage taken from the scene shows Jewish marchers singing nationalistic songs and even shouting out, Death to the Arabs! Alternate Prime Minister and current Israeli Foreign Minister Yair Lapid offered a critique of the marchers, who included a handful of members from the opposition, including religious Zionism head Bezalel Smotrich. While Lapid supported the right of the marchers to assemble in the capital, he denounced the violent chants which took place. In a tweet released later that day, Lapid wrote, The fact that there are extremist elements for whom the flag of Israel represents hate and racism is revolting and unforgivable. It is incomprehensible that people can hold the Israeli flag in one hand and shout death to the Arabs at the same time. This isn't Judaism or Israeliness, and it is definitely not what our flag symbolizes. These people are a disgrace to the nation of Israel. The march required over 2,000 security officers to secure the route. It is being reported that 17 counter-protesters were arrested by police. Incendiary balloons sent from Gaza causing numerous fires in the Eshkol and Sharha Negev regions. The Islamic terrorist group Hamas has been launching incendiary balloons into Israel since Tuesday, causing dozens of fires in agricultural areas throughout southern Israel. The balloon attacks began Tuesday, ostensibly as Hamas's response to the rescheduled flag march in Jerusalem. Israel launched retaliatory strikes against Hamas targets in the Strip. There were concerns that Hamas might launch rockets into Israel once again. Iron Dome anti-missile installations were seen being deployed throughout the capital. Hamas launched the incendiary balloon campaign as an intermediary step that would not elicit a full-bore Israeli military response. In the past, Naftali Bennett had criticized Netanyahu from his right flank, arguing that balloon attacks were no less worthy of a harsh military response than rockets. To that end, airstrikes have been launched against Hamas targets in the Gaza Strip and continue at the time of broadcast. The Egyptian government, who brokered the recent ceasefire, has been operating as an intermediary between the two parties. They have told the Israelis that Hamas is not interested in an escalation. The airstrikes are the first military operation under Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. The situation remains tense. There is also evidence that Hamas is using the balloon attacks as leverage to allow funds from Qatar to be dispersed. 
Before the most recent violence between Hamas and Israel, Qatar had been providing over $30 million per month to Gaza for humanitarian relief. Since last month's violent conflict, the Israelis have been blocking this disbursement. Hamas understandably wants the funds released. Hamas has also been seeking a prisoner exchange with Israel. Currently, two Israeli nationals are being held prisoner by Hamas. Avraham Mengistu, a Jewish Israeli with a history of mental illness, crossed into Gaza in 2014. He has been held prisoner since. Additionally, Hisham El-Sayed, an Arab Israeli with a history of mental illness as well, wandered into Gaza in 2015, where he has been held captive. Hamas also is holding onto the bodies of two Israeli soldiers, Aron Shaul and Hadar Golden, who were killed in battle in 2014. Back-channel negotiations are ongoing. Palestinian leaders meet with Egyptian officials. Palestinian leaders, including Hamas chief Ismail Haniyeh and a delegation from Mahboud Hamas's Fatah party, have just concluded discussions with the Egyptians. The leaders of the two factions met separately with the Egyptians to discuss ways of implementing a ceasefire with Israel. A meeting between the two rival Palestinian factions is scheduled to begin next week. The Egyptians are seeking to broker a rapprochement between the parties. In April, Mahboud Abbas, the leader of Fatah, announced that he would hold Palestinian presidential and legislative elections, the first in 16 years. He promptly canceled the elections a few weeks later when it became apparent that Hamas would handily win. Hamas's popularity has increased dramatically since last month's conflict with Israel. The Egyptians have announced $500 million in redevelopment aid to Gaza. This includes infrastructure and redevelopment projects in the narrow Mediterranean territory. How these funds will be distributed remains a thorny problem. The Egyptians are wary of Hamas, to the point that they impose a blockade in the Gaza Strip. There has been a rest of Islamic extremist movement in Sinai, including factions representing ISIS. Egypt also fears militants and weapons flowing from Gaza into its territory. The United States and Israel have indicated that they would like all reconstruction efforts to be funneled through the Palestinian Authority, controlled by Fatah. How this would happen, and if it will happen at all, will likely be part of the discussion between Egypt, Hamas, and Fatah. Israel, the United States, and the Gulf states will be watching developments closely. Hamas leader Ismail Haniyeh has also announced from Cairo that he will be traveling to Lebanon and Iran in the coming days for meetings with senior Hezbollah and Iranian leaders. While Hamas is a Sunni Islamic movement, indeed it's the Palestinian branch of the Islamic Brotherhood, it has maintained close ties with the Iranians and their Lebanese proxies, Hezbollah. Much of the military material and technology used in the most recent fighting with Israel originate in Iran. Despite the religious differences between the Shia Iranians and the Sunni Hamas, Iran remains Hamas's most significant international backer. Iranian elections to take place June 18th. In an election that has largely been discredited by international observers, Iran's current chief justice, Ebrahim Raisi, is projected to cruise to victory. While Iran maintains the trappings of a democracy, its elections are largely stage-managed by the ruling Shura Council. This body is composed of 12 Shia Fukaha, or decisors of Islamic law. These jurists and clerics are seen as the guardians of the Islamic revolution. They have the ability to vet and disqualify candidates at their discretion. Of the 592 candidates who threw their turban in the ring, the Shura Council approved only seven. Of these, Ebrahim Raisi is the most prominent. His election is almost certainly assured. Ebrahim Raisi is known for his role as a prosecutor of enemies of the revolution during the 1980s. His prosecutions were known to lead to thousands of executions. What is notable in the elections has been how many well-known candidates have been deemed ineligible by the Guardian Council. 
The Shura Council disqualified the candidacy of Ali Laranjani, the longest-serving speaker of the Iranian parliament, or Majlis. Also disqualified were former Vice President Eshag Jahangir and former two-term President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Internal dissent was evident. Mr. Larijani's brother, Sadek, sits on the Shura Council and he decried his brother's disqualification. Hassan Khomeini, the grandson of the revolution's founder, decried the Shura Council's meddling. Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, the former president, has vowed to boycott the elections. It seems that millions of Iranians will do likewise. The outcome of the election is a foregone conclusion. The only interesting development is the question of whether Iranians will clamor for change into the electoral system. These calls are being made by many Iranians, including by many prominent politicians and clerics. Likud files no confidence motion against newly installed government. Likud lawmaker Miki Zohar submitted a motion of no confidence against the new government a mere three days after it was inaugurated. The ostensible reason for the motion was that the current government was established on lies and defrauding the public, having no mandate from the public. The vote will likely take place on Monday and would require 61 votes to pass, a level of support that the Netanyahu-led coalition in all likelihood does not have. This motion is probably not expected to succeed. Rather, it is meant as a shot across the bow that lets the current government know the opposition's intentions. The opposition includes the Likud, the ultra-Orthodox parties united toward Judaism and Shas, as well as the extremist nationalist party religious Zionism. While the Arab joint list is technically a part of the opposition, they do not attend opposition meetings. Miki Zohar, one of Benjamin Netanyahu's most loyal MKs, has continued to refer to Netanyahu as the Prime Minister. Moreover, Mr. Netanyahu has indicated that he will not vacate the Prime Minister's official residence for several weeks. This may indicate that Netanyahu hopes to bring down the newly installed government before he is required to leave. Netanyahu's final speech as Prime Minister made clear that he views the current government as legal but illegitimate. He vowed to return to power soon. The change government that unseated him was voted into power by the slimmest possible margin, 60 to 59. This means that Netanyahu could return to power by dividing the already fractured coalition. He could also seek additional defectors from Naftali Bennett's Yamina party. One party member already voted against the government, and internal party polling indicates that a majority of Yamina voters are unhappy with partnering with left-wing and Islamic parties. New coalition unable to extend ban on Palestinians who marry Israeli citizens from receiving citizenship. The New Change Coalition was unable Wednesday to extend a ban on Palestinians who marry Israeli citizens from being awarded Israeli citizenship. This measure, viewed as essential to Israel's security needs, was supported by Likud in the previous government. It had wide support from the majority of parliamentarians. Nonetheless, it seems that Likud may vote against the measure in order to embarrass the current coalition who cannot pass it because their coalition partner, the Arab Ram Party, opposes it. Blue and White's Benny Gantz implored Netanyahu and the Likud to support the measure in the best interests of the State of Israel. This law is essential for safeguarding the country's security and Jewish and democratic character, and security considerations need to be put before all political considerations, Gantz said in a statement. Even at difficult times, politically, we put Israel above everything. Likud responded in a tweet by saying, Those for whom Israel's security is important would not form a government with Ram. Despite the fact that Netanyahu met repeatedly with Ram Party leader Mansour Abbas at the president's residence and clearly offered him a place within the Likud-led coalition, this offer did not materialize only because the ultra-nationalist and extremist party religious Zionist Hatsiyonu Tadatit refused to sit in a coalition with Ram. 
Now for Israeli business news. Israel's WalkMe raises $287 million in Nasdaq IPO with a $2.5 billion valuation. WalkMe, a Tel Aviv-based firm, makes software that helps software developers give on-screen guidance to users. It began trading on the American Stock Exchange on Wednesday. WalkMe was founded in 2011 and is led by CEO Dan Adika, President Rafael Sueri, and Eyal Cohen. In the preliminary prospectus filed with the SEC, the company stated that revenue for 2020 surged 41% to $148.3 million. In the second quarter of 2021, revenue rose 25% to $42.7 million compared to the second quarter of 2020. This means that the 85 Israeli companies traded on Wall Street have reached $300 billion in valuation. In fact, Israel is a powerhouse on the exchange, having the third most companies listed on the NASDAQ after the United States and China. The Israeli companies listed on the exchange account for 75% of Israeli GDP, actually outpacing the market cap of shares on the Tel Aviv Stock Exchange. Since the beginning of 2021, this valuation has increased by a staggering $100 billion. Israeli firms have seen an increase of 12% since the beginning of 2021. This increase outperforms the NASDAQ index of 9%. Editorial content is not necessarily the express opinion of Israel Week in Review. Editorial writers are encouraged to submit editorials that may be selected for publication. Submission should be between 1,000 and 2,000 words and may be submitted on the website, israelweekinreview.com. The current Israeli Change Coalition is an opportunity for the country to move past two years of deadlock and political instability. This instability led to the unique situation wherein Israel was unable to pass a budget in 2020. Continued instability will eventually lead to the downgrading of the country's credit rating and a slower economic recovery in the post-pandemic era. Moreover, as recent violence in the Gaza Strip demonstrates, Israeli political instability invites military confrontation with its enemies who see dissension and weakness within the country's ranks as an opportunity. It is undeniable that Benjamin Netanyahu has been a transformative figure in Israeli politics. His contributions to the Jewish state are historic, and he deserves recognition for these accomplishments. Even going back to his time as finance minister in the Sharon government, Netanyahu's tireless efforts to liberalize the Israeli economy, reduce bureaucracy, and encourage entrepreneurship were essential to Israel's dynamic economic growth. Despite his hawkish reputation, Netanyahu also kept Israel out of unnecessary military entanglements. His rapport with world leaders put Israel amongst the first rung of developed nations, where the country has increasingly been viewed as something of a world power. However, over his long term in office, Netanyahu made numerous political enemies that have prevented him from building a stable coalition. He has a well-deserved reputation for crushing talented politicians with charisma and ideas of their own, preferring sycophants like Mickey Zohar and David Batan. We should not forget that Bennett, Lieberman, and Saar were all at one time allied with Netanyahu. The previous coalition government that included Benny Gantz would have offered Israel the stability it so desperately needed. However, rather than honor his agreement with Gantz, he jettisoned the agreement in the hope of gaining a parliamentary majority. After four elections, this was not to be. The country cannot continue to go back to elections indefinitely due to the political machinations of one man, no matter how talented and accomplished he may be. Netanyahu will be remembered most for the development of the Abraham Accords. These developments are absolutely historic and transformative. 
Their importance will only come to light in the coming months and years. Nonetheless, an honest observer must concede that these agreements would never have come to pass without the presidency of Donald Trump. The recognition of Jerusalem and the Golan Heights, the Peace to Prosperity proposal, and the Abraham Accords could not have happened without Donald Trump and the work of Jared Kushner and Ambassador David Friedman. The political calculus of these decisions was made in large part due to Israel's supporters in the evangelical community. Whether we like it or not, the United States has a new administration, and the Democrats now control both houses of Congress. Netanyahu's close association with Republican politics would make the ability to influence Congress and the presidency that much harder. Moreover, it must be said that Netanyahu's tenure began to take on divisive and even demagogic characteristics. His playing with Israel's basic laws in coalition agreements and desire to allow for direct election of the prime minister only after he failed to form a coalition four times would ultimately reduce confidence in Israel's institutions. It is utterly legitimate to advocate for direct elections for prime minister if done before elections. It reeks of self-dealing to push it through ex post facto. It is unmistakable that Israel has become a center-right country. The left wing has atrophied over the ensuing years, mostly as a consequence of disillusionment with the Oslo process. It would have been entirely possible to have maintained a Likud-led coalition government. Had Yassi Cohen or Nir Barkat been allowed to have taken control of the Likud, the party today would be enjoying a supermajority coalition. In fact, there were discussions to pardon Netanyahu for his various corruption trials and appoint him president. This would have allowed Netanyahu to bask in his role as Israel's elder statesman. At 71 years of age, he would be 78 years old at the end of his presidency. Rather, he chose to take the Likud into the opposition. The Likud could have had both the presidency and the prime ministership. Now, because he was unable to relinquish power, the party lost both positions. In fact, as long as Netanyahu remains the opposition leader, he will give strength to the change bloc. Distrust of Netanyahu seems to be the single overriding commonality. A Likud led by Yossi Cohen or Nir Bakat would almost certainly lead to the collapse of the current government. It is my sincere hope that Israelis give this government a chance. The current change coalition may allow Israel a measure of stability. Counterintuitively, the coalition's disagreement on final status issues vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians may allow Israel to attend to long-neglected domestic issues. Naftali Bennett has long stated that he does not view the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as solvable. Rather, he views it as manageable. Optimally, he would like to see a reduction of conflict and de-escalation with the Palestinians, as well as investment in their economy. The current situation may provide just this sort of opportunity. Gidon Saar has made a number of sensible suggestions regarding governmental reform. His suggestion to split the role of Attorney General into two roles, one to serve as the government's legal advisor and the other as the state's chief prosecutor, is a sensible suggestion worthy of further consideration. A Victor Lieberman and Yeshatid's desire to reduce massive subsidies for yeshiva students and help to bring more Haredim into the workforce may only be possible in a government without the Haredi parties. Moreover, sensible, long-needed reforms to the chief rabbinate may be possible only now. Merits and labor also have the opportunity to bring home legislative accomplishments for their respective constituencies. The Environmental Protection Ministry and Transportation Ministry may allow Israel to take the lead in renewable technologies and sustainability. Moreover, investments in the Israeli public transportation system are increasingly needed in a country that is amongst the most densely populated in the world. Lastly, the inclusion of Ram may be a source of strength rather than weakness. 
Mansour Abbas has been a moderating force in Israeli political life in recent months. His level-headed response to the intercommunal violence that occurred last month was greatly appreciated by many. His vow to help repair synagogues that were burned down in Lod has great symbolism and may help the country de-escalate. Moreover, if Mr. Abbas is able to genuinely improve the quality of life for his constituents, he may cause a sea change in Israeli politics. Arab involvement in Israeli government will almost certainly help to bring about qualitative changes to infrastructure, education, income, and public safety in Arab communities. If the peace agreement with the United Arab Emirates continues to develop apace, Israel's large Palestinian Arab community will reap its dividends. This can serve as a moderating influence on politics in the Arab-Israeli community. Until this point, the Arab parties have been intransigent and self-defeating. For those who argue that Israel is a center-right country, and that the current coalition empowers left-wing and Islamic voices, I would argue that each community maintains a veto over the other. Likud was more than ready to empower Ram. Yamina, Israel Beitenu, Tikva Hadasha, Kohov Lavan, and Yeshatid can hardly be characterized as leftist. This is a contentious time in Israeli politics. I only hope that all those who love Israel will give this government an opportunity. Breaking apart this coalition and sending the country to an unprecedented fifth election can only cause harm. This has been Yosef Main from Israel Week in Review. This has been Ben Ronsman from Israel Week in Review. We go behind the headlines to provide you with insight and understanding of the news from Israel and the Middle East. Israel Week in Review has been brought to you through the generous support of Origin Story Marketing, helping your business find its customers through search engine optimization. For a complimentary consultation, visit originstorymarketing.com.